I have eight children. We are living in a tent. There is water on top of the tent and the ground is damp. We are asking for tents and they don't give tents to us. I have three grandchildren. One of them is three months old and the other one is one year and a half. When the powerful 7.8 magnitude earthquake hit southeastern Turkey at the beginning of February, the country was changed forever. Since that fateful morning, those that were affected have done whatever they can to try and piece their lives back together. But tough questions are now being asked across Turkey. Was the state's response to the earthquake adequate? Why did so many buildings that were built in a known high-risk earthquake area collapse with such ease? And can the country move forward under President Erdogan's leadership? Or is it time for a change? I'm Hugo Goodridge, and you're listening to The New Arab Voice. So first of all, we have to understand that this earthquake was an immensely big one and the weather conditions as well as the infrastructure all played against a quick response by the Turkish government. I am Amal Özkizilcik. Amar is a foreign policy and security analyst based in Ankara. The recent twin earthquake that hit the southeastern region was immense. So far, the death toll across both Turkey and Syria has passed 50,000 with the majority of these deaths happening in Turkey. Uh, in the first one and a half days, uh, there were some issues, difficulties, and also some uh, response which came uh, a bit too late. And this uh, issue was also acknowledged by the Turkish president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, as well. On February 8th, one resident of Karaman Marash made a desperate plea. Please help Kahraman Marash. We are on Ebra residence. We're in B block. There is no work. Our beloved ones are under the debris. We are all waiting here. There is no work. Please help. Please. I'm calling out to my president. All of you help. Where is the help you sent? Where is it? Eventually, help did come to the affected areas, but aid efforts were greatly hindered. So we see that there were three main difficulties uh, why the aid was late on the first uh, one and a half day. The first issue was the extreme bad weather conditions. On February 6th, the day of the earthquake, the city of Gaziantep in the southeast of Turkey recorded temperature highs of just 5 degrees Celsius and lows of 2 degrees. And in the days leading up to the disaster, snow had been falling. Before the earthquake happened, this region had uh, school holidays because of the bad weather conditions. The governors of these regions have uh, said that the children do not have to go to school due to the bad weather conditions, and this played extremely against aid delivery and first response and first, first rescue operations, as the region could not be reached due to the bad weather conditions. Airplanes, helicopters could not fly. Uh, we have seen that many cars could not go due to the bad weather conditions and it was naturally very uh, problematic. The second issue, according to Amar, was the immediate damage to infrastructure. Roads had been badly damaged. The main airport in the affected city of Hatay was out of action. Desperately needed logistics were hindered. 
While the weather and severe infrastructure damage are ultimately out of the control of the Turkish state, it's difficult to deny that the third pillar of failure in the response to this disaster doesn't lie with the government. The third factor is something which is systematic and from the uh, a result of political action. And this was, in the past, Afad was an, a presidency directly linked to the prime minister. And when the sustained change happened to the presidential system, Afad was not, as most of the people expected, a presidency under the Turkish president, but it got uh, degraded into the, in the hierarchy of the Turkish state as a sub-entity inside the Turkish interior ministry. Here we have some crucial details that reveal the flaws in the Turkish response. Firstly, AFAD. AFAD is the Disaster and Emergency Management Presidency. It was established in 2009 as a single independent authority, when three different disaster, civil defence and emergency management organisations merged to become AFAD. It was designed to provide pre-incident work, such as preparedness, mitigation and risk management, during incident work, such as response, and post-incident work, such as recovery and reconstruction. If you've ever heard of the US organisation FEMA, AFAD is the Turkish equivalent. It remained as a single independent authority until the 2017 constitutional referendum in Turkey. With this referendum, Turkey shifted to become a presidential system, with the post of prime minister abolished, with the president becoming the head of the government and the head of the state. Critics said that Turkey had effectively turned into a country of one-man rule. Following the referendum, Afad was moved. No longer a single independent authority, but now operated under the Turkish Interior Ministry. This means that when disaster strikes, like it did on that early February morning, Afad takes its orders from the Ministry of the Interior. It cannot act unilaterally and send help to where it's needed as it sees fit. So from a bureaucratic perspective, in a disaster time, Afad as a sub-entity had to give orders to a higher authority in the Turkish bureaucracy, which does not function that way. It's a, it's a very good example of this problem, bigger problem of centralization, because we know that... Afad this is Mustafa Gabuz, a senior faculty member at the American University and a non-resident fellow at the Arab Center, Washington, D.C. The earthquake was a chance for Afad to step up and show the country what it can achieve. But instead, much of its inner workings were laid bare. And that revealed, there's a disaster revealed, the inner workings of Afad, uh, which made the situation far worse for the Erdogan government, because there is now a, a lot of questions about Afad. Questions like, who is running Afad? The fact that the head of the Afad's disaster response department is a theologian who previously had a long career in the religious affairs department and, and having no experience, no experience in disaster management. And he is the head of the disaster response department. And of course, it drew the public's ire about nepotism, corruption in the government agencies. 
With the disaster revealing such issues, Mustafa believes that it also raised questions in the minds of President Erdogan's supporters about the kind of system that they had been supporting for so many years. And I think it was revealing to the constituency of Erdogan that the corruption is now linked to nepotism and inefficiencies and ineptitude of the government agency. So like hollowing out the state institutions are linked to corruption and nepotism. It's really a new thing because corruption allegations has been ongoing for many years, but never, especially for Erdogan's constituency, who were listening to stories of Erdogan about the great power projection of Turkey in the Middle East, having this you know, big regional powerhouse of Turkey not really helping its own people because of failed state institutions, because of these uh, these nepotism and the inner uh, workings of the corruption. So that became very much a revelatory uh, moment for many, uh, especially for the Erdogan's constituency. While the response of Afad may have been slow when the disaster first hit, This was not an indictment of the brave men and women who worked tirelessly at the site when they were deployed. Rather, the AFAD response exposed the corruption and nepotism rife in Turkish state institutions and the deep-rooted corruption in Turkey's construction sector. Omar Özkazilcik again. So when it comes to these destroyed buildings, most of them were collapsed either due to their age because most of them were old and built in line of the old regulations, which is not sufficient for an earthquake region. Or secondly, there were some, some buildings which were not built properly. It's difficult to predict when an earthquake will strike. But you can know where an earthquake is likely to strike. All around the world, there are buildings constructed in areas which have a high probability of being struck by an earthquake with this fact in mind. We have the knowledge to build in a way that minimises the risk of a building collapsing, even in the event of an earthquake. And these buildings who were not built properly or can be seen very visually. One building is staying, the next is collapsed entirely. And this is a very important issue inside the Turkish society in general. When we look at the construction networks and the housing networks, we see that these are maybe in terms of uh, behavior and culture, the worst of the worst in, Tur- in Turkey. And in the wake of the devastating earthquake, President Erdogan's opponents have seized on the issue. I think this um, moment was a, a revelatory moment for, for many because it was just epitomized everything the opposition was claiming. And the opposition was talking about these bigger issues and deep problems, rooted problems in Erdogan's success story with regard to the construction sector in Turkey. When Erdogan came to power in the early 2000s, he promised the Turkish people a building boom. And the growth in the construction sector and the jobs and economic benefits that accompany it have been cited as reasons behind Erdogan's continued electoral success. And, of course, uh, looking to the big picture, we see that these regimes' cronies long benefited from lavish government contracts uh, for massive infrastructure and construction projects. They were very much protected, very much empowered, 
by the government. And it was also very much the base of its government's own benefit because the regime's cronies getting these contracts are also media tycoons uh, that would make the pro-government uh, media for, for, for under Erdogan. So the propaganda arms machines. So these people are very much also making the regime powerful and strong. And again, at the expense of environmental and societal costs, they were very much protected. It's a vicious circle. The government hands out lucrative building contracts, and in turn, they are given positive coverage, ensuring that more power can be secured by the government so that they can hand out more contracts. And while there are plenty of well-constructed buildings in Turkey, recent events have shown that there is an unacceptable amount that do not meet the required standards. It's fair to ask how so many buildings that did not meet standards were given permits. Why was no one sounding the alarm? The depressing truth is, they did sound the alarm, but no one listened. Scientists warned Erdogan government to do some action in Marash and other cities about code violations, about new buildings on fault lines, right? And telling that an earthquake is coming. With these warnings in hand, this could have been the moment to fix the buildings, get them up to code, and as best as they can, ensure that they are safe for the people living inside them. And what they did is actually putting amnesties for the code violations. And and the numbers are now around... 300,000 buildings across affected earthquake zone received construction amnesties. 300,000 buildings. These amnesties are legal safety exemptions in exchange for a fee. So people are getting these amnesties from the government and paying money to the government. (laughs) And we know that the government gathered billions of dollars through the, these amnesties. And of course, they also said that they resolved citizens' problems. It was also electoral campaign uh, for Erdogan to say, uh, we solved our citizens' problems through these amnesties. Faced with the warnings that an earthquake was going to come, and with the knowledge that the buildings were not suitable for an earthquake-prone area, the Turkish government opted to sell the lives of the citizens and then frame the transaction as a remedy to the problem. But the buildings remained. Families lived in those buildings. Until the inevitable. We see that uh, this is something which uh, surpasses political differences, political parties. uh, These issues in terms of corruption and improperly built buildings is something which is very deep rooted in some issues inside the Turkish society. And I'm not quite optimistic that this earthquake will be enough to change this uh, bad culture in the Turkish society in terms of construction and housing. While the Turkish government has accepted that they certainly could have acted quicker, they have not accepted that there are faults in the system. The government is uh, changing its frame. It's it's not that government is claiming to be swift and ready and, 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 and such, but rather they say this is a disaster of the century and repeatedly saying it 
And uh, that frame is revealing a purposeful strategy uh, from the government side to highlight that it's not possible to be ready for a disaster like this. So it is impossible for any government. And, and Erdogan repeatedly said that in the world, any government uh, or any agency cannot handle such a disaster. So that's the government's framework. So there's no uh, controversy. With both presidential and parliamentary elections slated for this year, there is an opportunity for the public to let their leaders know how they feel about what the earthquake has exposed. Over the past week, much of the talk has been about whether President Erdogan would seek to delay these elections. There is a route for delay, but it is fraught with difficulty, even for the strongman leader. The Turkish constitution does not allow for such a delay. So the Turkish constitution is quite clear. If there is no war, the elections cannot be postponed. And to change this, the constitution has to be changed. But there is no arithmetic in the Turkish parliament which would allow this to happen, as the Turkish opposition does not support the idea of the elections being delayed. As it stands, the constitution dictates that the election must be held by the middle of June. Prior to the earthquake, Erdogan had marked May 14th as election day. There were suggestions that in light of the earthquake, the president would push them back to June 18th, the latest date constitutionally permitted. Others suggested he would seek an additional 12 months. This would require getting the support of opposition MPs, which he can't get, or going to war with another country. A bad idea. There is another strategy playing the legal game. If he wants to do it, uh, Turkey's Supreme Election Council could rule that the devastated cities are not ready to hold elections amid the mass relocations of voters to other cities and some other feasibility issues. Uh, The problem with this option, however, is that the council has arrived at such decision only once in Turkey's modern Turkey's history. Uh, In 1966, um, two days ahead of the vote, there was a there was an earthquake and they made it under that circumstances. But today, with the modern registration system and now elections still two, four months away, the council's potential ruling using this technical incapacity argument will not sound convincing to most Turkish voters. So probably it would be interpreted as Erdogan's fear. On Wednesday, March 1st, Erdogan addressed Parliament and appeared to indicate that the elections would go ahead as planned in May. And you should know that people will do what is necessary on May 14th. They will never give a chance to those who keep on telling such lies, he told the parliamentary chamber. So he is facing a huge dilemma. He needs to deal with growing public criticism and an emboldened opposition if the current election schedule is to be respected. And uh, he don't want to appear afraid of the ballot box. That's why he may be seeing that a postponement may not guarantee the elimination of the current negative public atmosphere. And he may want to silence opposition right now. And which is also, of course, another aspect that we should pay attention 
right now some people are detained in Turkey. The government is just trying to push the opposition back to their traditional role in which they, they were not very much active in pushing, but rather very much seem to be a nice opposition, so to speak. So now it's it's a moment of frustration, anger, and there's a lot of vocal criticism. In his long career, Erdogan has faced multiple electoral challenges. This might be his most difficult. The opposition parties are assembling and are taking aim at him, his office and the power he has amassed. Less than a week before the earthquake struck, an alliance of six opposition parties met in Ankara. Fike Ostriak, a spokesperson for the opposition CHP, addressed the room. Uncontrolled power is not power. It's a disaster. Our nation has seen this by living under the arbitrary, ruleless administration that is called the presidential government system. This administration has become a problem of survival for our state. For this reason, the Nation Alliance calls for a libertarian, democratic, fair and strengthened parliamentary system that ensures the separation of powers instead of this bizarre system that recognises no rules. With the upcoming election, there's a possibility that Erdogan's rule could end the same way it started. In August 1999, a 7.6 magnitude earthquake hit northwestern Turkey. When we think about 1999 Izmit earthquake, the earthquake at that time revealed incapacitated state institutions and widespread corruption led by the Turkish military elite and their cronies at that time. And it was the root causes of the economic crisis of uh, 2001. It was a huge financial crisis that led to collapse of Turkey's entire banking system and then increased public demands for reforms, uh, created a vacuum and political opportunity for the newly founded Erdogan's AKP, which succeeded in coming to power in 2002 with major promises of financial reforms and better governance. So Erdogan, who rose to power uh, with that context, now facing a significant test of his decades-long political career, perhaps the biggest ever test, because the recent earthquakes have exposed widespread ineptitude and incapacitated state institutions, corruption and nepotism. A very similar revelatory moment and just hitting months before the critical presidential and parliamentary elections, it's understandable why Erdogan is so furious. In spite of everything that has been revealed, in spite of the anger felt by quake-hit people in Turkey, and in spite of the long-running issues that existed prior to the devastating earthquake, Erdogan's defeat is not assured. It will likely be the most difficult electoral challenge he has ever faced, but the Turkish president is an experienced and wily political animal. Nothing is guaranteed. Nothing except perhaps that, for the people in southeastern Turkey, who over the past month have lost so much, endured such tragedy, the road to recovery will be long, 
and they will continue to need as much help and support as they can get. Final words to Omar Ozkazilchik. It is very hard to speak about anything positive inside uh, such a huge catastrophe and disaster. But it is positive to see that how much the Turkish people have uh, shown solidarity with their Turkish citizens in this region and how much of an aid was sent from all across Turkey. There wasn't one single city inside Turkey who were not engaged and involved massively in collecting and transporting aid to this earthquake region. And we see that the solidarity inside among all of the Turkish society is very high. And the earthquake in this region did not only stop the life in this part of Turkey, but across all of Turkey, as everyone was heavily engaged in collecting aid, transporting aid, or even going to this region and volunteering and helping these people in the region. And we are seeing that, especially the Turkish youth, which were regularly criticizes in the Turkish public, have been very active in helping and providing aid, and which shows that also the Turkish youth is uh, a generation on which we can uh, trust our hopes. This episode of The New Arab Voice was written and produced by me, Hugo Goodridge, with additional help from Rosie McCabe. Our theme music was by Omar L. Phil. The New Arab Voice will be back next week. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at The New Arab Voice, for additional content. We also have a weekly newsletter, which you can sign up for. Find the link in the show notes. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news, analysis and opinion from the region. <laughs>